Welcome to the In the Oil Patch radio show, broadcasting from the SR Trident studio. SR Trident, where safety is a culture, not just a word. In the Oil Patch radio show with Kimball Auto is where you will hear the latest in the oil, gas, and energy industry from a wide variety of industry experts, elected officials, and more, right here on In the Oil Patch radio show. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Pilato. Today, we have a great show lined up for you. We're going to be joined a little bit later on in the show by Amy Cronus and Melinda Yee, both leaders in the oil and gas sector for Deloitte. Let me tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine. Our feature is Nick Dulles, who is the president of CNX Resources. We recently had an opportunity to interview him on our radio show. Very interesting company to consider that we have not had a new built refinery in the United States uh, for quite some time. So very interesting story. I encourage you to learn more about Nick and his company, CNX Resources. Go to shellmag.com and click on the magazine cover to read all about him and many, many, many more articles on oil, gas, and business. I'd also like to encourage you, if you want to stay up with the latest issue of Shell Magazine and or the latest show of In the Oil Patch Radio Show, please visit us on our social media pages, like our page, and you'll stay up to date on all of the latest issues as well as all of the latest shows. Now it's time for me to welcome on the editor of Shell Magazine and my co-host, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in the oil patch. It's certainly a very interesting week in the oil patch, an interesting month oh in the oil patch yeah. as well. And so um, there's a lot to talk about again. And we'll start with our good old favorite topic that tops everything all the time is either crude prices or gas prices now. So let's start yeah. with gas prices. David, seriously, they just keep going up and up. And yeah. this week, the average has gone well over $4 uh, a gallon, even here in Texas. And media reports are reflecting that every state now have gas prices above $4, every single yeah. state in the United States. And that has never, ever happened before. So first of all, what is happening all over the United States? I mean, I know we're going to talk about policies and elections matter, but also, is there any relief coming soon? Well, no, there, there's not any relief coming soon. In fact, it's going to get much worse. Uh, you know, we're entering the summer driving season and, and demand has gone, you know, goes up every year at this time. And, and even with these high prices, it's, uh, you know, we're not seeing any signs of demand destruction right now for gasoline and, and supplies are very tight because of what's happening in Europe and in Asia and with the war in Ukraine and, and, you know, two to three million barrels of oil per day from Russia have just, you know, been taken off of the market due to all the sanctions. So the market's very undersupplied and, and so gases, uh, gasoline prices are going up and uh, I suspect we'll have $6 per gallon gas uh, sometime in June and uh, maybe $8 uh, later in the summer. And you're talking um, about in Texas or the national? Sure, average? yeah, in Texas, everywhere. Um, so California we'll is going to be like twelve. Oh, California is already close to seven. Um, you know, because California, we have to realize California has about a dollar and forty-five cents of additional taxes 
uh, on every gallon of gasoline sold in that state that we don't have in Texas. So if we're paying four and a quarter, they're paying 570. Um, and we're paying about 430 here in Texas. So they're 580 or so. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, they're going to be at six before the end of this month. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's terrible situation. Uh, the Biden administration is not doing anything about it. They don't, you know, they don't care. This is part of their plan yeah. to increase the cost of fossil fuels. And, and it's a very successful plan. It's working just fine for them. Well, yeah, I think it's working fine right now, but we'll see what happens in November because I think that yeah. all their constituents are like, we can't afford this. And um, I think we'll see a lot of change occurring, which needs to happen because otherwise you can expect it's going to get a whole lot worse yeah. um, along with all of the other shortages that we have. Um, so we'll see. Um, natural gas, it keeps going up as well. And it seems to be stuck at well over $8 per MMBTU. So first of all, tell us what's causing that. How much are we using of natural gas here in the States? And then globally, how it affects the, the global stage as well, natural gas. Yeah, so we use about uh, 22 trillion cubic feet of, of natural gas each day. Yeah, so we're paying eight, eight, what, eight and a quarter today, I think, for natural gas is the average price in, in the United States. In Europe, they're paying $32 for it, for LNG uh, shipped into Europe. So Europe has a crisis that was brought on by their own stupid energy policies, uh, mm -hmm. their climate change frenzy that they went through. And it, it, all of this, all of this, all of these high prices, can be directly tied back to climate alarmism and, and the stupid energy-related policies that global religion of climate change has created in the Western world. Mm -hmm. And uh, Europe has been the main catalyst of that. California has followed right along with them. We're doing it in Texas just a little slower because we're a Republican state, but our policymakers are going down the same path that California has gone down. And, and it's all because of this, this climate change religion. And, uh, you know, this is a byproduct of that. And everyone needs to realize it. So when your utility bill, uh, starting in late summer, goes up by 40 or 50% uh, because natural gas prices are so high, you're going to want to blame the natural gas producers for that mm -hmm. problem. And it's not them causing it. It's the people right. in Austin and California mm -hmm. and Washington causing it. Mm -hmm. And you can either change your voting habits or just get used to the pain here because this yeah. is a product of those policies. Well, I don't necessarily know if I quite agree with the pain or is this just a redistribution of wealth in which the poor are really in trouble oh, and the middle class is going to fall out because right. this is unsustainable in the path that we're on so you're right, right the habits need to change because you know and we did an energy minute on this that aired in all of our stations of that you know you cannot hold the oil and gas liable for price gouging when they're not even selling the gas if they're producing it unless they're in a refinery capacity so how can you hold these you know companies responsible right. it's 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 just not that's not really what's happening. There's so much disinformation about it in the news Correct. media and from the politicians that are really responsible for it. 
And right. it's understandable why people are misinformed. That's right. But you can get it straight here on the show, right? You'll get the yes. truth. Let's uh, change gear to something that really just kind of makes me smile <laughs> because it's quite <laughs> funny, but it's actually very real. And, yeah. you know, everybody loves Elon Musk. Um, they love Teslas, right? We all love Teslas. <clears throat> Until he started to cause waves um, this week, the whole ESG rating system is, uh, you know, it's a huge scam for the company. Tesla has now been downgraded for its ESG, which is environmental social governance performance. And, and so first I want you to tell us a little bit about yeah. how every, I don't know if a lot of people are hearing ESG because it's not just an energy anymore. It's reflecting a lot of different you know, areas, all different kinds of businesses yeah. are jumping in the ESG. Um, and I don't know if they really have thought it through, but what is happening here? Do you agree with the downgrading they did with Tesla? And they also added some energy companies onto the list of being yeah. really good at ESG, and then yet they downgraded Tesla. What happened? Yeah, S&P Global does this ratings uh, of companies based on their ESG performance, these metrics, these artificial metrics that have been created to supposedly gauge how well, how sustainable a company is. And, uh, you know, when you if you accept that uh, electric vehicles are cleaner than gasoline vehicles, uh, then no company on the face of the earth has done more for the environment than Tesla has, right, in the last 20 years, if you believe uh, that those cars are cleaner. And so uh, Tesla gets taken off of this list <laughs> You know, right at the time he's going about buying Twitter, it's obviously a political move by the the woke people at S and P who do these ratings, and he's furious about it. Um, and at the same time, Exxon Mobil is ranked in the top ten, and Exxon Mobil does a wonderful job with its environmentalist, you know, initiatives within its company. And I don't, I won't argue with that, but it's just all so absurd in such a stupid way to rate a company. You know, here's Tesla, it's the most successful electric vehicle company on earth, on earth, and it gets taken off of the list for these stupid artificial ratings, and um, I don't blame him for being angry. I'd be mad, too, if I was him. Well, David, wasn't SNP Global also responsible for putting out that they were going to change crude pricing to include the WTI pricing, and I mean, like, the whole world and energy went up and said you can't do that like you don't have that kind of power to do that you can't change pricing or add you can't change contracts that are in place for 20 years start adding in other fuels and other types of crude into contracts that are, are in place just because you want to add them in and change the way that we purchase crude do you remember any of that because that I, I don't I, i'm not familiar with that they I'm did and they had to walk that. it back they had to walk <laughs> that back so they might be walking this back like Twitter because they're taking on Elon, <laughs> Elon Musk. We'll see what happens. That sounds very interesting. David, that is all the time we have for this segment. When we return, we're going to be joined by two global energy leaders in Deloitte. Malin Yi and Amy Cronus are back to talk to us about a report that's coming out from Deloitte. You're listening to a Noel Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. SR Trident is a veteran-owned and operated industrial construction company. Established in 2012 by co-founders Stephen Snyder and Ryan Berthold, 
SR Trident has positioned itself as an expert in the industrial construction sector. With mounting business expansions, they've assembled a team of skilled, experienced, and able individuals who are dedicated to meeting client needs as they evolve. SR Trident's safety record is impeccable as they've won a number of awards, including the ABC National Safety Excellence Award in 2020. With exceptional leadership and experience driving their gains, SR Trident can tackle any project and are ready to let their talent be the driving force in the energy industry. Call today, 361-776-2662 or visit online at srtrident.com to request a bid proposal today. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210 210- 2407188 again 2102407188 And now it's time for me to welcome on our guest. My first guest is Amy Cronus who is the US oil and gas and chemical industry leader for Deloitte LLP. My guest also is Melinda Yee, who is a leader at Deloitte in the oil and gas merger and acquisition practice. Ladies, you guys have been on the show before, and I want to welcome you back into studio. We haven't seen each other since pre-COVID in the studio, so I'm sure there's a lot to cover in the oil and gas industry, along with things that have changed since COVID uh, has come and hopefully gone to a degree. So I want to get started. But before I get started, I'd like to give you ladies an opportunity to talk to the audience, tell our audience a little bit about some of the background. Amy, you do a lot in the oil and gas sector, and so do you, Melinda, uh, both powerhouse ladies. Tell, I'll start with you, Amy. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on in your area with Deloitte. Sure, and thank you very much for welcoming us back, Kim. After after this two year pandemic pause, it really is nice to see it people is nice arrive to again. see people, <laughs> and it makes a difference. It really does. So thank you for having us back. Happy to engage with your listeners, and there's a lot going on um, in my role as our U.S. industry leader uh, in the energy space. Here, there's so much going on in terms of the, as you can imagine, with energy security, with energy transition. Um, companies are in all different places of the spectrum in terms of what they're doing, but everyone is changing somehow, whether it's a little or complete transformations. And so that's very exciting for us as we help our clients navigate uh, into this lower carbon future. And there is such a need for helping because all these different industries, whether you're an up, mid, or down, are all of them are in transition to some degree. And I think they do look to companies that really show that they have their finger on the pulse, if you will, with uh, research. And it's really heavily backed up by research of where they should be going, depending on the size of the company and what they're looking for in the future. Melinda, I want to ask you as well, too, because you your expertise area is a lot in merger acquisition. And we're going to get into that in the show as well. Tell us a little bit about what you have been working on in your area with Deloitte as well. Sure. Well, thank you again for having us back. Um, happy to be here after after this pandemic pause. So, you know, from an M&A perspective, things have been um, 
uh, it can be very cyclical and there's a lot of uncertainty right now. And so there's a lot of questions as to what that activity is going to look like going forward. Um, we're really helping customers in analyzing the risk that goes along with mm-hmm. what they're looking at and the acquisitions that they're uh, looking to make or even the divestitures that they're looking to um, potentially execute on and helping them position for that activity. We know that there's a lot of questions and not enough answers. I think a lot of operators and uh, in the whole value chain up, mid, and down, should they be hiring? Should they be diversifying? Should they be selling, spinning off assets that maybe are not as high in the area of ESG as they'd like? Where do they go to borrow money? There's a whole lot that we're going to cover in today's show. But I want to start with what is on a lot of people's mind right now, and it's the whole Russia Ukraine situation that's impacting the oil and gas markets. And uh, my question is, what will the price be um, in the way of an impact? We keep seeing it jump back and forth, up and down, super high, super lows. And, and I think there's a lot of confusion on a consumer perspective, what they are what they can expect to pay at the gas pump, but also even within the oil and gas sector, uh, what really is going to happen if this continues much further. How bad will the supply chain issues get? Amy, do you want to start with that? Sure. You know, you're absolutely right. When there's conflict in the world, we can expect there to be far-reaching implications for the global economy. And, you know, this has really been amplified when affected regions are among the world's largest producers of oil and gas. So, you know, in addition to the Ukraine-Russia situation, you know, we've got rising inflation, heightened geopolitical tensions in other parts of the world, and uncertain economic activity. And that's all making the markets and oil prices highly volatile, uh, which, you know, know, causes even more uncertainty. So uh, the way we're seeing it, though, is that the industry is likely to stay disciplined. And it's going to avoid betting on the current oil price environment. An oil price of above 100, it's also not comfortable for producers and buyers as it starts diminishing demand. We don't see that staying forever. Okay. So if the conflict was to end in some positive way um, within the next couple of weeks, are we still on course of what we're seeing? Or do you think we'll see another disruption to some degree, maybe better in the energy industry? Well, you know, th- this has always been a cyclical business. And you know, we like to say this is an exciting new frontier we're on with energy transition. So I don't, we don't see that stopping. Those pressures and the need for capital from investors who think the uh, environmental, societal, and governmental implications are ESG, mm-hmm. uh, that's not going to stop. So I think we're going to continue to see a change and drive for more efficiency. Over the last couple of years, operators, especially in shale, have really gotten more efficient. And I think they're going to continue to understand and, and work towards lowering emissions and doing what they can to. Use so they're going to stay the course no matter really what's going to happen with the Ukraine and Russia invasion. In, in terms of improving operations, um, disciplines. And, and needing to upgrade and upskill their workforces. And I was curious about that because there's a lot of chatter in the media about how some of the operators, due to the fact that there's a lot of uh, sanctions that are on Russia and some of the major oil and gas operators are looking to pull out, they have pulled out, and how that affected the energy sector as a whole. We're seeing rig counts go up, but we're also seeing discipline because of the capital. You know, the, of the capital you know, investment. The capital investment occurring. went away over okay. the last couple of years because of the, the you know diminished demand. Everybody's forgetting that we had a huge dip in demand before the pandemic and then during the pandemic, huge, you know, much worsening. So bringing that back on, um, there's lots of stories around how there's supply chain issues, labor shortage issues. It's not as easy as, as, as we all know, is just turning a valve to get uh, the production back to where people would like it for energy security. 
That's correct. It's not as easy. Ladies, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, Melinda, I'd like to get on uh, M&A, mergers and acquisition, and what you're seeing in that area. You're listening to in the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers has a rich and commanding history of fighting for the independent oil and gas industry. The Texas Alliance became a statewide organization in 2000 with the merger of two of the oldest oil and gas associations in the nation, the North Texas Oil and Gas Association and the West Central Texas Oil and Gas Association. Today, with more than 2,600 members, the Texas Alliance is the largest statewide association in the country serving independent energy producers and associated industries. Through our efforts in Washington, D.C., and Austin, the Texas Alliance is focused on a better business climate for you. The Texas Alliance has a staff consisting of highly experienced senior staff and supporting consultants serving our membership. Offices are located in Austin and Wichita Falls. Become a member today by visiting texasalliance.org or email us texasalliance at texasalliance.org. Hey you, do you want to join the fastest growing oil and gas network in Texas? Ma'am, I'm all for growing my business. So you've got my attention. What is it? Teak is the Texas Energy Advocates Coalition. They hold business mixers to help businesses grow and network. Any cost to join? For the next 90 days, it's completely free. No charge to join. But they do want like-minded individuals to attend who are interested in growing their business and networking. Well, I want to join. Where should I go? Go to shalemag.com slash Teak and click on the join link. Enter your information and we'll get you set up. Join the Texas Energy Advocates Coalition at shalemag.com slash teak today. We're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Amy Cronus and Melinda Yee, both leaders in the oil and gas sector for Deloitte. Ladies, before the break, we were kind of discussing how uh, Ukraine and Russia, the situation, how it's impacting the global markets. But I'd like to ask you, Melinda, to weigh in on the changes that are occurring. How is it also impacting the mergers and acquisition activity too? Or is it driving more mergers and acquisition within the oil and gas industry? What do you see happening? Amy mentioned this uncertainty that's that's occurring in the volatility in prices that um, is, is causing that. And, and buyers really don't like that uncertainty. So it makes it harder to transact and come to agreement on pricing. Um, so really, until oil prices stabilize and the direction of oil prices are clear, we're not expecting robust activity. You know, there are some other influencing factors there. Interest rates are certainly one of them, cost of capital that goes along with that, and the ability to transact at prices that buyers would like. And then when you have high oil prices as well, there's also the argument around buy versus sell. So do you retain what you have versus trying to sell that off? We have seen a decoupling of capital expenditures and M&A activity. We certainly saw that during 2021 where you had a 75% rebound in the price, the commodity price in 2021 and record cash flows as a result. But deal activity was only modestly um, impacted by that. You had an 18 to 31% increase and CapEx increased by only 17%. So there's certainly some factors there that I think are will influence pricing and um, the supply and what's available. Certainly COVID is, is a question, what happens and continues to happen with that, the uncertainty with the Ukraine situation. All of that is impacting the activity and, and the pricing. A quick question. So recently there was a media report in which it was discussing how some of the major operators are spinning off some of the 
higher admission type uh, wells that they're using to more independents that are purchasing them because they want to hit their goal in ESG and being more aware of it. Is that part of what you're looking at in the way of the acquisitions in that area specifically that you're seeing large operators spin off some non-performing wells and they're cautioned to make sure that they pay attention to their board and of course ESG and where their direction is heading towards and trying to keep an eye on that. Well, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of looking and in, in considering going on for um, environmental sustainability and governance type objectives. So we're seeing small-sized or private exploration and production companies who who prioritize financial metrics and, and, and but might have a re- relatively weaker ESG profile. Those are targets for upstream M&A because you've got large oil and gas companies, to your point, who are picking up those assets for their portfolio to help them with their lower carbon emission goals. You've got super majors and multinational conglomerates. They're looking for buyers who can develop their assets responsibly. So as as buyers are unable to address environmental issues, they could redirect such liabilities to them in the future. So, you know, that's definitely, you know, you're seeing this a larger uh, body of consideration in our due due diligence efforts for sure. You know, and one of the considerations is, is that a seller can't pass its emissions problems to a buyer and assume that its shareholders and regulators would be okay with it anymore. And then, Amy, with that, the key financial indicators, what is the energy industry, what should they keep their eye on in that specific area, the key financial indicators for them? Sure. So so I just mentioned that, you know, the M&A um, has to add towards ESG goals, but definitely has to be financially accretive. So, you know, we're keeping an eye on impact in global markets, inflation and consumer spending. You know, in terms of energy, we're continuing to see U.S. oil producers exercising caution in their decisions about increasing their capital expenditures. Uh, we're looking at oil and gas price spreads between markets and hubs. So because higher spreads, ref- you know, they reflect supply chain problems and geopolitical uncertainty. So those those are important. Uh, drilling activity and change in drilled but uncompleted wells in U.S. shales. Um, that's letting us, you know, give us an indicator around whether U.S. players are breaking or maintaining that discipline that we've been seeing the last couple years. Uh, we're looking at hedging positions of oil and gas companies where higher hedging uh, would mean producers are expecting higher volatility. And then lastly, we're looking at fall, the fallout between joint ventures or partnerships of oil and gas companies worldwide, especially that of European and Asian companies. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to get on the discussion of what's the price per barrel. At right now, it's 90 to to $100 a barrel. What are some of the key areas that operators should be looking at in that area, too, and how does it affect them with these prices? You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, advertising and social media and search engine optimization all of these areas really affect how google ranks your entire listing so if ranking on page one is your goal pick up the phone and call us now 210-240-7188 or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile we'll be in contact with you within 24 hours once again pick up the phone and call us now 210-240-7188 or simply go to shalemag.com that's s-h-a-l-e-m-a-g.com slash business profile start dealing with a company you can trust and always find
And we're back. My guest today is Amy Cronus and Melinda Yee, both with Deloitte. Before the break, Amy was talking to us about key financial indicators. I want to switch gears and talk to you a little bit about acquisitions. You know, the price uh, per barrel has definitely gone up due to a lot of environmental and world geopolitical things that are happening. How should companies be responding to this? Should they be avoiding uh, buying high again, or should they be looking to purchase? Please give me some indications of what you think these companies should be looking for in the way of acquisitions. So what we're seeing is companies are still being very disciplined about how they spend their capital um, and how they view acquisitions and these transactions that they're entering into. You know, they're really looking for acquisitions that are going to be help reduce their cost structure overall um, and looking to extract new synergies from existing contracts and infrastructure in sync with its low emissions or net zero goals and still generate significant value in today's market. You know, assets that are producing or near to production or have a strong ESG profile, those are quite popular. Um, those that are digitally powered or analytically driven are also um, in favor, and those that have a shorter capital gestation cycle are also being prioritized. When you say that, I'm curious to understand, are these assets poor and primarily here in the United States? Are you looking at them globally? In what areas are your companies that are asking you for this information? What are they really looking at here in the States or is it globally? It really depends upon the the company itself and its foot, footprint and where it has existing infrastructure. So to the extent that it's got a domestic footprint, it's you probably focused on in-basin consolidation and some of the things that make sense from a cost perspective in basin. If it's a global footprint, it might be looking different at, at different aspects of it in terms of the contracts that might be in place. And um, But if it's global, it's, it's, it's looking at you know, the contracts that are in place and, again, the synergies that could be extracted from that. Amy, the ESG, Environmental Sustainability Governance Metrics, they, how they perform, how do they weigh in when we talk about evaluations as well? Well, so from ESG disclosure, which is assessing a target company's transparency and comprehensiveness in reporting, to ESG ratings, which is then assessing their environmental, social, and governance risks, to even ESG progress cards. So you've got you've got this whole gamut. Which so this is, is the new thing that's coming out as progress cards on how they're right. actually looking at climate change and adhering to better quality standards. Absolutely. You've, that's exactly right. It's a combined company's progress on its stated ESG goals and priorities. So that whole spectrum of disclosure and ratings and progress cards, it's making buyers move much faster now coming to terms with these new metrics and new ways of evaluation. The, the, you know, the business case has to be made and proven for ESG and its value beyond the immediately visible numbers of valuation and shareholder returns. And, you know, we still see it's really evolving because there's not standardization yet proposed regulations are supposed to be coming out, and we think that'll help uh, add a level of consistency and standardization and more certainty for, you know, for comparability purposes. And once that happens, we think that having strong ESG propositions can really help reduce your downside risk, uh, lower your loan and credit default swaps, have, you know, support your credit ratings. It'll, you know, do a lot of positive things for a company's overall reputation and therefore value. Well, you know, one thing that just keeps cascading over me and my thoughts is how with Deloitte, you know, these these major operators in whatever the chain is, whether it's up, mid or down, are coming to Deloitte to find out the research of how to make future predictions. But the fact that you guys are kind of or you guys are also in helping them to evaluate how to look at climate change and things that are really, really important to all of us 
you're, you're addressing it and you're helping them lead the way in helping lower the admissions and taking climate change, taking it seriously, and they're making these changes. And so that's a really good thing. But I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about acquisitions again, because there definitely seems to be some changes that are occurring when we talk about energy transition and how is it influencing these merger and acquisitions. Melinda. Sure. So I'd say companies are really evaluating their strategy and their approach to the energy transition. And with that, they may be reevaluating their portfolio and where they're going to, what they're going to prioritize, maybe also what they're going to divest of. And so um, Amy mentioned this shift in ownership of assets where you've seen some larger players divest of some assets to some of these relatively smaller oil and gas companies. Some of the, in fact, what we saw was last year in 2021, Pure Play ENP companies did 85% or were 85% of the upstream buyers of these assets in, in 2021. And that's leading to significant change when you think about the profile from a buyer's and seller's perspective. Companies are, are very much focusing on broadening their, their energy sources And so with that, they may be looking at different areas, renewable energy, for instance, part of this energy transition, thinking about investments in areas such as LNG or carbon capture, electrifying the oil patch and the the oil fields as well as they reduce and, and think about their emissions in the oil field and how they operate and also the efficiency in which they operate. Amy, you and I, we run into each other a lot at the conferences. And I don't think that people really understand how much the energy sector is really taking this topic seriously and how they are, Melinda, like you said, really diversifying. We've seen this roll out this whole past year with the World Petroleum Congress. That was the the major message is diversification for the energy sector into all the things that you mentioned, Melinda. And we also saw it at Sarah Week as well. The train has left the train station, if you will, with these operators, rather, they're, um, you know, oil and gas producers, they're um, pipeliners in midstream. They know that they're having to make real changes to broaden and diversify their assets. They just can't stay in oil and gas anymore. So that leads me to the oil and gas companies specifically leveraging their clean energy for mergers and acquisitions to, do you see that this is really the only way that they can go to be safe and and be foolproof for the companies to make sure that they're going to live for a long time and continue to be profitable for their shareholders? You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, but which ones and how do they, you know, this industry really needs to do a better job of getting the message out that the, you know, to your point, the train has left the station. People are down the path in different parts of the spectrum, some moving very fast. So I would say despite the pandemic-led budget crunch and the capital discipline that we've talked a lot about, most major oil and gas companies are leveraging mergers and acquisitions and joint ventures. And they've, they've added around 80 gigawatt of renewable capacity in 2021 alone, including offshore wind, solar, and batteries. Um, we're seeing shale operators. It's still a niche. Granted, but we are seeing shale uh, operators use solar and wind. Right. And we do see that at the well site. Ladies, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, let's talk about some things that are occurring with ExxonMobil as well. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. SR Trident is a veteran-owned and operated industrial construction company. Established in 2012 by co-founders Stephen Snyder and Ryan Berthold, SR Trident has positioned itself as an expert in the industrial construction sector. With mounting business expansions, they've assembled a team of skilled, experienced, and able individuals who are dedicated to meeting client needs as they evolve. SR Trident's safety record is impeccable as they've won a number of awards, including the ABC National Safety Excellence Award in 2000. 
2020. With exceptional leadership and experience driving their gains, SR Trident can tackle any project and are ready to let their talent be the driving force in the energy industry. Call today, 361-776-2662 or visit online at srtrident.com to request a bid proposal today. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Amy Cronus and Melinda Yee, both leaders in the oil and gas sector for Deloitte. Amy, will we see more equity stake rather than complete takeovers on for renewables? And an example is ExxonMobil buying 25% of renewable companies. So these minority stakes, are they just experiments with them? Is this maybe more of a public relations type of campaign that they're doing? Or are they actually lowering cost in ways to explore carbon abatement? Or are they just dipping their toes into the energy transition water without major commitments? Because we do see a lot of the majors doing small changes, but then sometimes they walk it back to a degree too. Well, you know, here's our perspective. As we mentioned, this this industry is hugely cyclical and it's been through quite a few transformations and all the transformations didn't happen overnight. They took years. And so this industry is not new to exploring new partnerships, collaborations, joint ventures, or stake exchange models, mm-hmm. um, both in the U.S. and in very all kinds of different varieties across the globe, depending on different governments and, and you know, huge investments. So we shouldn't forget that it's the large exploration and production companies that have really transformed the world in through very different kinds of you know, partnerships and agreements. So, you know, this industry has among the highest number of projects where competitors are partnering among themselves. And many of these associations have remained strong for decades now. And so I think what we're seeing right now with um, all kinds of investments, um, some of them, you know, very creative and innovative in terms of algae or, you know, you name it. There's a lot, the R&D that's going on. Uh, is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, the research and development is right. really, and occurring quickly too. Yeah, and so, you know, I don't, you know, who knows which of all those R&D experiments or investments or investments in tech startups are going to be the ones that get, you know, scaled and commercialized. Um, still unknown, some of those, but there's no doubt that the big moves now that the big companies are making around hydrogen hubs and carbon capture and storage those require massive investment and public-private partnerships, help with government regulation. So I think the industry's always prioritized long-term relationships where partners have focused on developing a capability or achieving economies of scale and scope and sharing risk and expertise. So I, th- I think we're going to see lots of very unusual investments to come. Unusual, but I also think it's very exciting to see different countries partnering together all in, in the area of trying to be profitable, but also trying to solve some of the most complicated problems on the planet, which is climate change, along with we need energy to survive. Melinda, let's, let's talk about private equity uh, abandoning upstream. We've heard this for years. The Wall Street wants diversification in oil and gas. What does that bode for the future for for the energy sector specifically? Maybe more in the, is midstream benefiting from uh, lower values, and how 
long do you think that they'll stay in this subsector area? So I guess my question is, private equity, are they still the driving force behind how much production we're going to continue to produce? And how do operators continue in that environment? Private equity has always been a source of capital to help develop the oil patch. And the interest in the sector may have waned more recently, but it's really shifting. And it's, it's shifting from the development of hydrocarbons and the acquisition of acreage and growing reserves into really building a new and integrated energy infrastructure. There's infrastructure funds like the steady cash flows of the midstream sector, but they're also looking at the energy transition and how you play in that. So midstream plays a part in that. So does developing LNG, so does uh, developing storage and carbon capture. And a lot of these infrastructure funds have a lot of capital to deploy in those areas. As a class, they're looking to potentially with other stakeholders, whether it's governments and municipalities or whether it's larger producers, to really help and invest in building the infrastructure for our new low carbon energy environment. Well, one thing is for sure is it's a very complicated topic. And I think that it's hard for just a person that is outside oil and gas to quite understand you know, liquefied natural gas, they, they, they hear the term LNG or they hear electric and they don't really know, uh, are you talking about vehicles or something more? When we talk about at the well site, they have solar panels and they're also using uh, other forms of renewable type energies to power the rig site. There's just so much in the area of energy transition. I want to switch gears and Amy with downstream. The deal uh, count rose somewhat while the value dropped 27% as the activity shift with big deals around aviation and renewable fuels. We saw that at the World Petroleum Congress with United talking about how they are wanting to uh, look at alternatives to jet fuel. Are refineries going to become stranded assets? I mean, we've got a lot of refineries here in the United States. What, what's ha- going to happen with them as we start seeing the energy transition? Well, we're seeing rather than constructing new grassroots renewable diesel production units, refineries with existing hydro processing units could be positioned to increase their speed to market with conversion. So we expect evolution. So today's stronger focus on environmental, social and governance issues is definitely driving interest in more sustainable alternatives. So downstream is expected to evolve. Are, are they making that transition right now, do you see it, or is this in the planning stages and we'll start seeing these changes as much as we're seeing in the exploration and production and the pipeline at midstream area? You're, we're already seeing these transitions occur with hydrogen and stuff like that. So are they already currently in this transition, and if so, it's only going to continue to grow? Yes, I think we're going to see that continue to grow. I was going to also add, you know, as you think about downstream Another area that um, bleeds into that is the petrochem area, and that's an area that really the U.S. has a cost advantage in that sector. When you think about chemicals and the feedstock that goes into into chemicals and the natural cost advantage that we have having all of our shale gas here in the U.S. versus other parts of the world, especially with what's going on today. And we have seen some new chemical plants being built and created. One of them specifically down the road here in Portland is uh, the ExxonMobil SABIC partnership that came together and they created one. There's also another one uh, here in Houston. So those are the ones that we're starting to see. And you know what I like about them is that they're actually being created. They're state of the art. So they actually have already built in a lot of the concerns for the environment. They're taking that seriously. And so now we're seeing state of the art type of facilities being created. Absolutely. To your point, they are, you know, using the latest artificial intelligence and sense sensors and able to harness lots of data to, you know, make the preventive maintenance so much more efficient, so much cleaner um, and and lower emission than ever before. 
Well, I think the future for oil and gas is definitely exciting, but it's also futuristic, and we're seeing how new energies are evolving to solve probably the most complicated topic on the planet outside of life is energy, and we need it, right, for sustainability in life. And to see the industry itself operating and trying to fix the problems, it's, it's an exciting time to see energy transition occurring. Melinda, Amy, thank you so much for joining us on In the Old Patch Radio Show. Thank you for coming back and joining us, and we look forward to having you back when you guys release some more reports. And I think, Amy, we're scheduled to go and do a tour of Deloitte's Greenhouse. Do you want to talk quickly about what that is? Of Happy just- to. It's our new innovation center uh, powered by Energy and Industrial. Uh, here in Houston, Texas. Uh, we, we have 40 greenhouses around the world. This is 14 in the U.S. This is our newest, most technologically advanced. It's a space for ideation, co-creation, and prototyping with our clients as they tackle these very serious challenges uh, to the industry and to their workforce. And so we're excited to welcome folks in, and it's an envir- it's a safe environment to experiment, look at, you know, to help solve their problems, whether, as I said, it's the workforce or supply chain obstacles or transforming into a lower carbon future, whatever it might be, we offer them. It's very versatile. We look forward to doing a tour there. Again, thank you, ladies, for coming and joining us on the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you. Happy to be here. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.